What a joy to be together, amen? We're going to be continuing our series in Matthew today. If you want to go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. I'm really excited for what God has for us today. We're doing something a little different. We're starting a series within a series. We're going full inception uh, with our Sundays. We're going to be spending the next couple of months working through Jesus's most famous teaching, the the Sermon on the Mount. And and the reason we're kind of separating out like this is this is going to feel pretty different from the time we've spent in Matthew so far. Up to this point, we've been looking at stories about Jesus, but we're about to spend a good amount of time looking at specifically and hearing Jesus's words. And, and not just his words, by the way, but, but his specific words of instruction for his disciples. Hearing that word, you and me, right? Because I have been looking forward to this for a while. I am excited at the potential of what God might do amongst us in our time together. So where have we been so far? Uh, If you recall, or if you've been with us, as we worked our way through chapter four in Matthew, we got to see in these stories, God launching Jesus's earthly ministry. We got to see the Trinity on full display as God the Father spoke blessing over God the Son while God the Spirit anointed him unto his public ministry, all at his his baptism, right? We got to see that same spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness where he faced the temptations of Satan, right? He was tempted as we were in every way, but he never sinned. Our beloved, amazing Jesus faced temptation and never sinned. And all this leads into his public ministry. We saw how he began to travel around the region of Galilee, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And that requires repentance for those who would like to join in this kingdom. We saw how he called followers around him, and then how he began to heal people and perform miracles in every place where he preached. And all of this caused this massive crowd of a following. People from all over Syria, all over Judea, began to travel to see Jesus, right? To to see what he's all about. And as the crowds get bigger and bigger, Jesus, as we'll see today, steps away to give some specific instructions to his disciples. It's important to note here that Matthew, Matthew has intentionally structured his book this way. You know, each of the gospel writers brings their own just kind of unique voice and perspective and order to the telling of the Jesus story. And Matthew does this interesting thing where he moves back and forth between long sections of chained narratives and then long sections of discourse or teaching. There are five of these back and forth, a chain of stories, and then a long chunk of Jesus's teaching. We are in the first of those long chunks of teaching. And we're going to see in this, we'll see Jesus lay out for his disciples what what you might call an ethic of the kingdom of God. This is a hugely important interpretive lens for us when we spend time in the Sermon on the Mount. Because because it tells us this. This is Jesus' discipleship ministry, right? 
He's giving ethical and lifestyle teaching to people who have already chosen to follow him, who are all in on his message, on his kingdom. This is a call for the followers of Jesus to live like the kingdom of God has come to earth. This call is as challenging and fresh for followers of Jesus today as it was at that point then. Beloved, the kingdom of heaven, just as Jesus said, the kingdom of God has drawn near. It's here, but it's all so far away, right? It also exists in this point in time when Christ returns and restores all things. It's already, but it's not yet. We are, church, by the grace of God, brought into this amazing family, this amazing kingdom, even though we are still dreadful sinners, right? The gracious love of God buys us entrance into the family. And then we, we get to do the work of building that kingdom here and now, all the while knowing that the reality is, as we fight and work to build this kingdom, it won't fully exist here until Christ returns, right? It's this weird both and, already but not yet. The world, beloved, is used to the curse. It will push and fight back against the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God is worth it. It's worth it for you. It's worth it for others. It's worth it for this world. It's worth it for Jesus because the kingdom of God is amazing, right? One last thought before we jump into our text today. Remember, Matthew is really concerned in his writing with making sure you make connections between the ministry of Jesus and the Old Testament and what's going on there. We saw this in the beginning of the book, right, in the genealogies and those things where Matthew kind of goes out of his way to show you that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the better David, and he's the better Adam, and those sorts of things. In our discourse today, one part of what Matthew's gonna do is intentionally show us that Jesus is fulfilling the ministry of Moses. You know, consider, remember, Moses came down the mountain with an ethical structure demanding obedience, right? That's essentially the story of Sinai, right? He goes up the mountain, he meets with God, he comes down with this ethical structure that demands obedience. Jesus, as we'll see, invites his people up the mountain with him. And he offers an ethical structure of grace. One where God himself is the primary mover and his movement inspires and fuels the ethical living he's describing. Thus, in this text, we see this beautiful piece that Jesus is like Moses, but he is far superior to Moses. Okay, that was a lot. Let's read this text and then go from there. Matthew 5, starting in the first verse. By the way, if you're in this space, you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to grab one of our house Bibles. They're under the chairs around the room. Matthew 5, starting in the first verse, we read this. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. That is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. Pray with me, church. Jesus, we thank you so very much for the gift of your word, for the gift of your gospel. Jesus, thank you for the amazing gift of your kingdom. It's such a beautiful thing to be reminded of this, to be drawn back to this. God, I pray for each of us in this space today that you would just speak to us afresh, God. In a text that's familiar and things that we've heard before, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do your ministry in our hearts, God. That you would actually draw us to what our hearts need today. God, for those of us who are in this space, we need to be reminded of the hope of the kingdom. For those of us who have, have grown cynicism and harsh calluses on our hearts, Spirit, I pray that you would pick them off. That you would pick at that part of our heart and remind us that there is hope in your coming kingdom. God, for those of us who are wearied and beat up by this world and the weight of the curse and the way it affects us and affects those we love, Jesus, I pray that you would comfort us with your words today. Remind us of the beauty and power and inevitability of your kingdom. God, for those of us who have been lulled into passive comfort, who have ceased to act upon the truth of your kingdom, Spirit, I pray that you would prompt us to action. That we wouldn't just await your coming kingdom, but that we would join in the work of building it. Father, we need you to do this work in our hearts. We pray these things with expectancy, Jesus. Pray them in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we're going to work through each of the blesseds one by one, uh, but it is, I want to pre-warn you, it's going to take me a minute to get there. So stick with us. There's a couple things I think we need to set up before we start walking through this that I think will help us understand Jesus' sermon as a whole, but also uh, what God kind of has for us in this text today. So let's start by setting the scene. I've shown you this map a couple times. I'm going to keep showing you this map. Uh, This is kind of a picture of what uh, the region looks like during Jesus' ministry. You see that little bitty body of water at the top? That's the Sea of Galilee. Here in that lake of Galilee, right? Like, it's a lake. But the majority of Jesus' ministry, up until the point where he travels to Jerusalem for his final passion, will happen around that lake. It's where a good chunk of the narrative of Matthew happens. In fact, in our text today, you know, when he set up his home base in Capernaum, this is where the crowds are coming to see him. He steps away from Capernaum to be with his followers and disciples for a few moments. I'm going to show you a picture of a, a physical place here. This is called the Mount of Beatitudes. This is a chunk of land that sits directly on that, that picture is of the northernmost tip of uh, the Sea of Galilee. That chunk of land sits just west of Capernaum. Uh, And it's kind of the tallest height uh, in this area. Again, 
calling this a mountain, but we're, I mean, like, hill, right? But anyway, anyway, this is not necessarily the exact spot where Jesus uh, delivers his teaching because we just don't know that. But, but likely in this region, right? We know he's based out of Capernaum. We know he steps away from the city and goes somewhere high up to be with his people. Uh, and this is the highest up little area near uh, ancient Capernaum, right? But even if it's not this place, it's something like this. He's near the sea, near his home. He steps up on some ground and invites his followers to come around them. It's important for us to remember the audience here. And I already said this, but I'm going to bring us back to this a few times. Jesus here is speaking to his followers. And by the way, that doesn't just mean the 12 apostles. It means those who have already bought into Jesus' message are actively seeking to live for the kingdom, right? Who are all in on this, which we know is more than just the 12 apostles. Later in his ministry, Jesus would send out 72 of his followers to go and preach the word and partake in the ministry. Some of the followers who aren't the disciples of Jesus get named over the course of his ministry. Some of his female followers, especially uh, some of his female followers who, by the way, financially supported his ministry and made it possible for Jesus to travel around and teach, right? The 12 are important, but we're speaking to the larger group of Jesus's disciples here. Jesus calls his followers around him and says, let's sit down and talk. And I know this, this might seem like a strange distinction, but this is an important distinction for us. Because as we'll see in Matthew, there's actually a pretty stark contrast between the followers of Jesus and the masses and crowds who gather around Jesus. The followers of Jesus are all in for the kingdom of God. They're all in for the work. The crowds, on the other hand, are definitely interested in what Jesus gives them. They're definitely all in for the healing and the miracles and the free food and even the teaching. But as we see over the course of Jesus' ministry, they can't give themselves fully over to the mission. And eventually Jesus' teaching pushes them away. It's interesting to note that on our text, Jesus picks this wide open public space to teach. So even though he's speaking to his followers, he's undoubtedly, right, there are masses gathered around who are standing and listening as well. And so at this point, you go, okay, so if they're both there, what's the point of the distinction? This seems arbitrary. Here's why it's important for us, guys. What we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount and in the whole ministry of Jesus and in our own lives is that there is a major difference between preaching to the church and preaching to the world. Now, let me, let me pick at that phrase for a second. Because in a sense, that's not true. The gospel is the gospel for all of us. We all need the gospel, whether or not you don't follow Christ or you've been following him for 10 decades. We all need the gospel of Jesus and need to be brought back to the gospel of Jesus continually. That is true, yes and amen. But there is also an ethic to the kingdom of God living. There is a way that God designed his creation to live, right? That God desires us to experience that creates communion with each other, communion with the creation, and communion with the Father. But here's the thing. That ethic, apart from the supernatural empowerment of the indwelling Holy Spirit, 
is a law that brings death. The law that crushes. If you read through the Sermon on the Mount and you look at the ethical standard of the kingdom of heaven and consider trying to attain that on your own strength, it's crushing. It's the exact same issue that Sinai brought about for the people. There's just no way for sinful people to live in a way that's perfectly pleasing to God. It's impossible. But Jesus is superior to Moses. The law that Jesus brings is the law of grace, where God himself is the first mover, where God himself empowers his followers to obedience. What we're going to see as we work through the Sermon on the Mount is that it is 100% necessary that your reliance on the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit be the fuel that draws you to kingdom life. You cannot obtain the life that God has designed for you left unto yourself because a sin nature still exists in your heart and draws you away from God's good design for you and toward idolatry and toward sin and toward death. Apart from the empowering Holy Spirit, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most depressing texts to read. You cannot obtain it. That's why this teaching is for the disciples. It's for the followers. Because for those of us who are in Christ, who've given ourselves to the kingdom, who have been cleansed from our sin and have the spirit that rose God from the dead dwelling within us, guys, there's such a thing as sanctification. And the Holy Spirit, the longer you follow Christ, the longer you live in submission to his spirit, the more his spirit moves in power in your life and changes you and forms you to be more like him. And you see your sin nature literally, genuinely, in a real and literal sense, dying and changing in a heart that once loved idols with glee, life following Christ. And when Jesus lays out, this is, what, this is what life in my kingdom will look like. We're drawn to the already not yet nature of the kingdom. And there's something in us that goes, oh man, I want to live like that. Oh, I cannot wait until the kingdom is fully established. And this is what life is like for all people. But it takes the spirit to get us there. So it's not an arbitrary distinction to remember that Jesus is speaking to his disciples here. The crowds are there. The crowds are listening, right? But there's a difference. How you preach to the church, how you preach to the world. Let's take a second to talk about this word, blessed. Our text is famously constructed around Jesus' proclamations of blessing, right? Blessed are, fill in the blank. A couple things to note here. First, this was an existing literary structure. This is not something Jesus made up. In fact, rabbis going all the way back to like the psalmist would use this structure regularly. And the reason is simple. It's a memorable way to teach theology, right? But this didn't just exist within Judaism. This is actually a common uh, structure used in Roman and Greek poetry. There's something about speaking to the blessing of God that kind of helps organize thoughts and can make them memorable. So let's talk about the specific word Jesus is using here. He's using this common Greek word used uh, in Roman and Greek poetry to use kind of this structure, which is this word makarios. This is a 
Great example. I know I don't normally kind of do the deep dive in the Greek thing, mostly because I don't understand Greek. But this one's important for us because this is a great example of a time when there's just not an easy word-for-word translation between Greek and English. Makarios is kind of a nuanced word, and there isn't just a single English word that encapsulated it. It's more of an idea. Like, like blessed gets close, but you'll notice that depending on your translation, it might not say blessed. Some of our translations say happy or something like that. That's because this word, makarios, it's used to describe someone who is in an enviable position. That's a weird way to say it, but it's important to kind of get this piece. This blessed means this person is in an enviable position. That could have a theological foundation like how we think of a blessing. And in fact, that is very bluntly how Jesus is using it. There's a theological foundation to Jesus' use of the word here. But it doesn't always have a theological connotation. It can be connected to happiness and the feeling of happiness. But as we see, even in the blessed today, this isn't always the case, right? Someone who's mourning is not happy, right? But Jesus says that they are in an enviable position. That's an interesting thought. The important piece here for us, and the reason I stop here for a second, is we have to understand that a person who is Makarios is someone who is living how we all ought and how we all want to live. They've tapped into what you might call the good life. One one commenter, I love this, one commenter said, the closest English translation to this word is the Australian figure of speech, good on you. I like that. Good on you. You've tapped into something. You're living how we all ought or want to live. Remember, for our purposes, Jesus is using this term in a specific theological context. His blessed are those who have tapped into God's design for them. Good on you, says Jesus, because God is on your side. You're connected to him. You're living as he built you to live. Lastly, let's talk just really quickly about Jesus' structure of the blessed here. This is an intentional introduction to Jesus' sermon, right? That's kind of an important piece for understanding this. There's a couple of reasons for that. First, you know, this is an era before podcasts, right? This is an era before note-taking and live streams. So the people who are here aren't sitting on the mount with their notebooks and their audio recorders, and they can't go back home and rewatch the YouTube video. They get to sit and listen, and they get what they get. And I don't know if you've sat and read through this in one sitting, But imagine someone delivering this as a single oratory, right? There's a lot Jesus covers. So he opens with the Beatitudes because they're memorable. They're easy to memorize and hold in your head. By the way, this is a great scripture to memorize, to have in your back pocket. And the reason is this. As the introduction to his sermon, the Beatitudes also summarize the sermon. They give you all the important parts of the Sermon on the Mount in one quick package. We see in the blesseds, the core of Jesus' messages for his followers, that they, that they long for the kingdom of God, that they work to build the kingdom of God, that they should expect hardship and that they should trust that God is for them. All of that is packed 
into these amazing nine lines of teaching. The blessings are divided into eight actual blessings, with the eighth one essentially In fact, as blessing eight states, the world will actively push back against these sort of people. But these people, in spite of being nuts, according to the wisdom of the world, they're the ones who, according to Jesus, have it figured out, who are to be envied, who are blessed, right? It's an important piece for us to remember. The kingdom of God is nuts to those who aren't in Christ. If you are the kind of person who chooses to give your life over to Christ and to seek his kingdom, you will make decisions that do not make sense to the world around you. The way you choose to spend your money, the way you choose to formulate your career, the way you choose to build up your schedule, the way you choose to organize your life, the way you choose to organize your schedule, kingdom. The second four show those who are actively seeking to build the kingdom here and now. But ultimately, all of them show us what it's like to live in God's kingdom. Beloved, Jesus saves, right? This means that you have been invited into his kingdom. When I use this, we're going to use this word a lot because Jesus uses this phrase a lot in Matthew. We talk about the kingdom of God. We're talking about the reign, the authority, the love, the grace, the presence of the God of the universe. This kingdom is here. And you've been bought into it. But it's also still coming. It's already, but it's not yet. You get to receive grace and love and identity from your Jesus, you also get to participate with him in building it here and now, already, but not yet. Okay, that took us a minute. Let's walk through each one of these real quick. Number one, blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. A lot of times when you hear the blessed taught or preached, they're preached as these sort of Your spirit cannot live as it was designed to live. Your heart is incapable of living as it was designed to live. But it's also connected, hear this, to an intentional awareness. Those who follow Jesus, they know, they know that they can't obtain heaven on their own. Something in our spirit is impoverished. We can't live the way we're built to live. I need outside input to obtain the spirituality that I long for. I need help. To this person, strangely, Jesus says the kingdom of God is yours. What a blessing. To the person who says, I'm incapable, I'm unable to obtain the kingdom, Jesus says, good on you. I'm just going to give it to you. This is a picture of the gospel. This is a picture of the grace of God. Good on them. We're impoverished in our very souls, but we worship a God who brings the kingdom to us. Come on. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's important to note here that Jesus isn't talking about mourning in kind of the normative sense that we use the term. Most of the time when we consider mourning in our world, we're we're thinking of grief and loss around death, right? And while it's true that in Christ, all mourning will eventually be redeemed in heaven, 
There is something more immediate in what Jesus is speaking of here. I think there's something just that kind of moves us beyond this regular normative mourning. I think Jesus is speaking to mourning in the rich, prophetic sense. Here's what I mean by that. Go back and read Isaiah or read Jeremiah. Look at the mourning of the prophets. The prophets mourned the realities of the curse and sin and what it did to the earth. They mourned the fact that the world was not as it should be, that everything was broken and not the way God designed it. This, beloved, is the mourning that Jesus blesses. The person who sees the world is not as it should be. Good on them. Because our God is actually restoring it. The kingdom of heaven is drawn near. And one day that nearness will be permanent. It'll be here. They will be comforted, those who mourn. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Depending on your translation here, the text either says humble or maybe meek. But the point is the same regardless. We're not talking about someone who is so weak that they have no ability to care for themselves. This is actually the same word Jesus uses for self-description later in Matthew when he says, come to me all you who are weak. Weary and burdened, I'm gentle and lowly of heart, right? You know, the whole, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The humility that Jesus is speaking of here is about someone who, regardless of their personal ability to care for themselves, regardless of how strong or weak they are, they're humbly dependent upon God to care for them. It's the image of what Jesus is pointing at here in meekness. Someone who is dependent upon the Lord for their care. This person doesn't seek to exert their own will and take, but instead humbly trusts the Lord. That person, good on them. Because this Lord they trust, he will give them the whole earth. He'll meet their every need. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the last beatitude that speaks from the side of kind of longing for the kingdom of come. The word that Jesus uses here for righteousness assumes not just a state of being. And the reason I say that is because most often in English, when we use the word righteousness, we're kind of talking about a state of the heart, right? Like, are you righteous enough to be in the presence of a holy God? And there's truth in that and what Jesus is saying. But this word he's using is also connected to the idea of righteous action. Righteous living. Someone who is, is, is hungering for that kind of life, a life full of righteous living. If someone is hungry for that. That means at some base level, they're not living that, right? If you're hungry, it's generally because your tum-tum is empty. If you get a full, you cease to be hungry. So here, the person who, who hungers and thirsts to live a life of righteousness. Good on them. Because our God will fill that desire. This is speaking to this sanctification peace. As you, as you continue to love and serve and follow after Christ, he shapes your heart. He'll make you holy like himself. He'll move you toward exactly this kind of life. The follower of Jesus who longs to live righteously, good on them. 
Because God is faithful and eventually they will. Love that. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This one is so simple, but so powerful. Give grace, receive grace. What a way to live. What a kingdom. Jesus is describing a person here who who looks at the sin of the world around them, who sees how it has ruined people's hearts and ruined their own heart and broken relationships and broken the world. And their response, rather than being one of bitterness or anger or vengeance, is mercy. That person who sees the evil of the curse and responds with mercy, good on them. Because God will pour out his mercy upon them. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Here Jesus is speaking to an inner state of the heart. Those who are being sanctified, right? Like we've talked about this a few times. Whose hearts are genuinely being molded in the likeness of Christ. Who are becoming more like him. I love this. They will see him. I mean, man, good on them. What a blessing. What an amazing picture that, that, that our God grows us in holiness, is faithful to grow us in holiness and make our hearts like him. But not just that, that he's faithful to grow us in intimacy as well. That as he sanctifies our heart, we more clearly can see him and know him, connect with him. Good on them. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The peacemakers will be recognized as connected to this God. There is, there's something about the love of God, the love of the kingdom of God in action that, that creates the kingdom peace in this world and, and identifies those who are at, about this work as the very children of God. You know, Jesus said, right, like, my peace I leave you, but I don't give my peace the way the world gives it. There's something about the peace of God that is unique in this anxious and chaotic and sinful and broken world. And those who are given over to the kingdom, those who participate with Jesus in building his kingdom here on earth, it brings about the kind of peace that is recognizable, that is distinct. Those kind of people, they're called the children of God. They're recognized for what they are. What an amazing picture of kingdom work on this earth. Good on them. This connects to the last one as well. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of their righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. We're reminded here that doing the work of the kingdom doesn't always get you positive recognition. Those who are used to darkness, we said this last week, right? Those who are used to darkness often don't want to leave the darkness. Beloved, the kingdom of this world will not simply roll over and allow the kingdom of God to take back the creation. Well, let me stop and qualify that. That's not 100% true. See, the kingdom of this world will actually stop and roll over and allow the kingdom of God to retake this creation. It just won't do it quietly. See, later in his ministry, Jesus would use this really interesting metaphor. He would say, if you want to rob someone who's buff, you can't just go in and take their stuff. 
First, you have to go in and tie them up, and then you can rob them blind, which is a very strange metaphor, right? But what Jesus is saying here is that the world we live in exists under the authority of death and curse and Satan. And there's a lot of power and authority there. You can't just come in and take what you want. You need someone stronger than the curse, stronger than death, stronger than Satan, to come in and restrain that strength and that authority that the kingdom of God might reign on earth. And beloved, Jesus is strong. He is able. He is capable. And so in a very real sense, the kingdom of this world will 100% roll over and the kingdom of God will reign on this earth. The victory is assured. But don't be deceived into thinking that means it will happen quietly and easily. It will be loud. It will be messy. It will be, according to Christ, painful. There will be suffering. This is to be expected. But, beloved, the blesseds end where they begin. Those who build the kingdom of God here on earth and suffer for it, good on them. They are in an enviable position because God is faithful and his kingdom belongs to them. His suffering for the kingdom stinks. It's terrible. Look at church history. It's hard. But the kingdom of God, the victory is assured. The kingdom of God work is worth it. And those who belong to Christ, it doesn't matter what the hardship, what trials they experience because the kingdom of God is for them. And then Jesus does this really important thing. He repeats the last blessing, number eight. But now, instead of saying it generally, right? He's been saying blessed are these kind of people, blessed are these kind of people. He gets really specific. And hear this. He's speaking to his followers. When we use that term in Matthew, I need you to substitute that for you. If you follow Jesus, this is talking to you. Jesus says, you are blessed when you suffer for the kingdom. Can we back up on that one for a second? Beloved, you are blessed when you suffer for the kingdom. Your reward is great. The kingdom of God is reserved for you. When you seek to build the kingdom of God here on earth, you will face trial and hardship, but the kingdom of God is for you and it's worth it. It's worth it. Your reward is great. Rejoice and be glad. So what do we do with this text? How do we land this out today? Well, beloved, at the end of the day, this is your Lord and Savior's rallying cry to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, this text is specifically for you. You are blessed when you long for the kingdom of God here on earth. Beloved, you are blessed when you seek to build the kingdom of God here on earth. I already said it. I'll say it again. This is the sort of text you should consider memorizing. Have your marching orders in your back pocket. Beloved, the kingdom of God has come near. But eventually it won't be near. It'll just be here forever. So we can join with Jesus in building it here and now, which is really about as practically as this text lands for us today. Because you see, the kingdom of God is here, right here, right now already, but it's also not 
yet. Jesus brought the kingdom of God. And again, by that, right, we mean the reign of God, the authority of God, the love and grace and presence of God. He brought it here to earth. But the kingdom of sin and the curse and death and Satan, it still exists. The kingdom of God has jumped feet first straight into enemy-occupied territory. And while the ultimate victory of Jesus is absolutely secure, that ultimate victory has not actually happened yet. I know it's weird for us to use war metaphors, but we're going to use this metaphor because it's important. I think this is where the text points us. In Christ, we are the forward force driving the kingdom of God into earth by the power of the Spirit. When Christ returns, the kingdom won't be near. It'll be here. In a very literal sense, in a very permanent sense. I'm going to use a weird image for us, but I think it's helpful. I want you to consider, like, go back to your high school history class and consider for a moment the liberation of France from Nazi Germany in World War II, Right? This is a country that was being controlled by the enemy. Nazi Germany owned most of France, and French citizens were forced to work the factories and to help accomplish the goals of the Reich. And beyond this, by the way, some French citizens simply embraced this life. Which is now that's the new people in charge, and we're just going to deal with it. Resistance meant certain death, and they didn't want to deal with that, and so they just joined up. I mean, French troops fought the allies seeking to liberate them. It's a weird part of history. And by the way, France is only occupied for a couple of years, right? And that mindset sunk into the culture and the people. Beloved, you are living on an earth with thousands of years in the hands of the enemy, Satan, sin, and death. The culture of death, the culture of curse has wormed its way deep into the bones and DNA of life on earth. This is why Jesus zones in on the reality of suffering for this kingdom. You will find, if you give yourself fully to what Christ has for you, that many people do not want to be liberated from sin and death. They're content with the world as it is and their life as it is. Beloved, living to build the kingdom of God here and now will bring about hardship for you. It will. You'll experience hardship from within because you will fail. Because you have a poverty of spirit. You'll fall short. You'll find that oftentimes you still deeply love your sin and your idolatry and you return to them afresh in spite of the goodness you've experienced in the gospel. And beyond that, even if you're walking in victory over your own sinful heart, you'll find hardship from without because the world will resist the authority of Jesus. If you seek the kingdom, you will often be looked down upon, dismissed, outright persecuted for pursuing Christ. Pursuing Christ does not make sense to those who are far from him. And the kind of choices you make will not make sense to people who are far from him, even people who love you. So, I'm going to end us, Chris, if you want to come up. I'm going to end us with a strange image that I hopefully think will be helpful for us as we consider this call to join Jesus in his work of the kingdom. I'm going to show you a picture of a young lady, and her name is French, and so I'm going to mess it up. It's Simone... Seg... Seg... I don't know. Simone. This is Simone. 
She's the one with the machine gun. Um, this is a pretty famous picture from World War II. Simone was a French freedom fighter. As a 17-year-old girl, uh, she connected with the French resistance against Nazi Germany. And the Allies were dropping supplies, airdropping supplies and things into France. And so this, this guy in the resistance meets the 17-year-old girl and says, I bet I can teach you how to operate a machine gun. Uh, and so he does and gives it to her. And she ends up being a really important resistance fighter, ultimately in the liberation of France. You have to remember, at this, at, uh, early in the resistance, it seemed like a very hopeless task. Now, Germany was kicking butt and conquering all of Europe. And deep in France like that, it didn't seem like there was much point in doing much of anything. So to think of a, to think of a 17-year-old high school girl, right, picking up that machine gun and going, let's do this. And by the way, she ends up being instrumental. She's present at the liberation of Paris. Personally captured something like 17 German soldiers, stole intercepts from spies, broke up communication lines. The lady's tough. She's still alive. She still has a uh, military rank in France as well, in her 90s. I love this picture of Simone, and I want you to look at it and consider it. Because here's the thing, guys. The work of the kingdom is hard. The work of the kingdom is scary. And let's be honest for a second. You aren't exactly the A-team. And I don't mean that to dig on you. But also we got to consider that, right? Like I think if you were just like building your dream team of like a resistance army to throw off Nazi Germany, probably wouldn't like your first pick wouldn't be to go to find some high school girls and give machine guns to them. I don't know, I was a youth pastor for a while. I don't know if that would work. <laughs> and yet, and yet, and look what she did for her people, right? Did you consider yourself, your own sin, your own weakness, the things that disqualify you? your own poverty of spirit, your own hunger and thirst for righteousness, the ways you fall short. And yet Christ called you. And yet Christ sought you out and saved you and bought you into his kingdom and placed his spirit within you. Beloved, you weren't qualified and yet God has called you. And beloved, he is faithful. He brought you into his kingdom. In Christ, he saved you. And you need to hear this. He is invading this lost and broken world, and he is winning. Your victory in Christ is sure. You seek the kingdom here on earth with an absolute assurance of the ultimate victory in Christ. I'm going to land you with a verse that's really sacred to my own story. It's a verse I come back to a lot. Philippians 1.6 says this. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Beloved, God called you to this work, which means he will see you through it. He will carry you to the finish line. Stay the course, beloved. The kingdom of God is absolutely worth the work. So jump in. Jump into both feet.
join with Christ in his work, building his kingdom here and now. And no matter how hard this thing gets, beloved, remember this. You are blessed. I'm going to ask you to do this. We're going to take just a minute to pray. And I'm going to come back up and lead us through communion. Before we do that, though, I want, I, I want you to take a minute in this space to be with God in prayer. And I want you to consider this call of Jesus on your life. If you're in this room, by the way, if you're in this room and you don't yet know Christ, I'm so glad you're here. Jesus loves you. He would long for you to be a part of his kingdom. But if you're in this room and you know, you know you have given yourself to follow Christ, he is your Lord, he is your Savior, I want you to consider the call of God upon your life. Consider what it means for you to not just long for the kingdom, to not just hope and wait for Christ to return and restore all things, but to pick up the tools and join him in the work. What might it look like for you to help build the kingdom of God here and now in your own family? Talk to Jesus about that for just a few minutes. And then I'll pray with us and we'll take you.